So this evening I want to give a kind of an overview of how we work with and transform the judgmental mind. Really a kind of a a map of the uh, week we're spending together and and really uh, of the many weeks beyond the retreat. Um, Because I think you probably have the intuition that um, transforming the judgmental mind may gather a certain amount of energy and momentum on this retreat, but we don't promise that it'll be done in six days. I'm sorry if that's disappointing to anyone and you, I don't know if you can get your money back, but uh, it is a long-term work. And so what I want to do is give some sense of um, really how we practice, why it's important to transform the judgmental mind, um, what judgments are, and how this work of transforming the judgmental mind connects with the path of awakening. With this um, intention to be free, to transform the various patterns of suffering in our lives and to increasingly live in freedom, an inner freedom that we also can then help to bring to others and help to bring to the larger world. So I want to start with connecting briefly the, the, the transformation of the judgmental mind with this uh, path of awakening, with the, with the development of um, greater freedom. We often talk about awakening, going back to the awakening of the historical Buddha, and tracing through thousands and thousands of um, practitioners who have come to much greater freedom. We usually look at that in two main ways. The first is that we open to and transform suffering. And the second is that we manifest increasingly the awakened qualities of freedom. And we'll be really having that kind of dual approach very much in terms of working with judgments. And those of you who know some of the Buddhist teachings know that that way of understanding in some ways uh, makes sense of the Four Noble Truths. The first two truths are about suffering and the roots of suffering. And the third and fourth truths are about freedom and the roots of freedom. How does freedom come about? And so, um, you know, on the one hand, we open to suffering. This goes against the conditioning, which is to flee suffering or to be scared of it or to hide it or to deny it or to put it in ghettos or to send it to third world countries or whatever. We don't want to look at all. We don't want to look at the uh, hard stuff generally. 
You know, I really found that when I've uh, traveled outside of the U.S., particularly to Asia, and actually also when I traveled to the former Soviet Union, uh, because I found in both those places there was not the same uh, level of comfort. Surprise. <laughs> and I found how much I had been conditioned to want that comfort. And it's a very much a comfort culture. You know, and there are a lot of positive aspects of that, but we also get uh, hooked. And we, um, very deep tendencies in this culture not to want to look at the difficult material, from the personal to the political. That's, that's, that's true in, in so many ways. And so we go against that with this practice. We are willing to open to what's difficult. In itself, that's a revolution. It's not easy. Uh, I don't need to tell you that on the first day of the retreat, where much of today, my guess is it wasn't what you signed up for. Is that true for anyone? Or maybe, how should I, I can rephrase that. (laughs) There were challenging moments. There was sleepiness. There was, uh, how many had sleepiness? significant part, how many had some kind of uh, distracted mind a good part of the day? How many had some self-judgment for this happening? Okay, okay, good. We'll track that, we'll come back to that. How many had um, some kind of uh, wanting of something that was not present? Okay, so this is... um, um, One way of understanding this is that these are forms of low to medium grade suffering, meaning that we have some resistance to the present moment. We have some way of uh, being reactive to what's happening in the present. And this is normal for the first day of a retreat, that that there are these um, challenges and generally it settles. You know, and, it, and the first day is universally the hardest. For, and, and those of you who've done retreats are familiar with this, and you probably have a certain amount of patience and equanimity. How many of you had some patience and equanimity with the process, in part based on past experience? Yeah, yeah so that's, that's really, really important. So this first aspect of awakening is being willing to open to what's difficult. And a lot of our work with judgments is to open to the judgments themselves, which are often somewhat unpleasant to look at. As we go deeper into them, we see that they're often connected with um, some kind of unpleasant or even painful uh, part of our experience. And to be willing to transform judgments, we have to be willing to go into uh, difficulty and suffering at times. And that's that's a significant part of the path of awakening. It's outlined in the first two truths, which essentially say there is suffering and there is a cause of suffering. And it's important to clarify suffering with a little bit of precision because it's used in English in all sorts of ways. Um, The best uh, teaching that does this is one of my Total favorite. So about half of all talks I give, this teaching comes out. So um, this is the teaching of the two arrows, sometimes called the two darts. And it really is a short version of the first two noble truths. And it's in some ways more accessible, I think. 
And it's very relevant to judgments. And this teaching goes like this. The Buddha once asked his practitioners a question. He said, everyone has unpleasant experiences. Whether one is awake or not awake, everyone has unpleasant experiences at times. What distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner? And his answer is the teaching of the two arrows. And it goes like this. Everyone is shot, as it were, by the arrow of the unpleasant. We might want to call this the arrow of pain. We all have a certain degree of unpleasant experiences, a certain number of them, by the fact of being human. We have vulnerable bodies. We can get hurt. We can get ill. We age. Ultimately, we die. All of these can be unpleasant. We have unpleasant thoughts. We have difficult emotions. We can have fear and sadness and grief. We can be treated unjustly, unfairly. All of these, in some ways, are not pleasant and not always easy to be with. That's universal. All human beings are vulnerable. The Buddha himself, when he was older, had a bad back and often had headaches. And sometimes he couldn't give the evening talk because he had headaches and he would ask an assistant to give the talk. And so that in itself, when we talk about transforming suffering, we're actually not talking about getting rid of the unpleasant or what we might call painful because he said that what distinguishes the non-practitioner from the practitioner is that the non-practitioner tends because of the first arrow, because of the presence of the unpleasant, because of the presence of pain, tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help get rid of the first arrow. In other words, reacts to the presence of the unpleasant in all the ways um, that we're probably familiar with. At the level of the body, we have unpleasant sensations and our bodies tend to tense. This is one of the reasons why one of the main applications, in fact, the first major application of meditation in the West was to people, was for people with chronic pain. Because they found that as much as 80 or 90% of what people actually experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the reaction. It's the second arrow. First arrow still hurts. But as much as 80 or 90% of actual pain is the second arrow, which is the reaction. And when one can teach people to reduce the pain down to 10 or 20%, it's major. You know? And that becomes possible with meditative training. In a, in a similar way, we can know that we have emotional reactions And we can have a difficult interaction with someone close to us and have a strong emotional reaction. And even though the interaction took five minutes, the emotional reaction can take three weeks or three hours or three days or three years. And in many ways, 
we react and we actually don't really experience the difficult emotion, but we go off into judgments and interpretations and blaming and self-blaming and so forth. This is the second arrow also. You can see that a lot of judgment is shooting the second arrow, often because of something unpleasant. So we, we, um, we have to really study this one. We can also see that sometimes when we're treated unjustly, we can react. And even though there's injustice, we react with the second arrow. Someone hurts me, I hurt that person. Someone acts violently towards my people, I act violently back. Wars are second arrow affairs by and large. Nonviolence is a lot, you know, in the traditions of Gandhi and King, is about not shooting the second arrow while working for justice and peace. You see, so it fits in here. We're working on a more inner way, but it also can be applied outwardly. So the key point here is that the first arrow we can call the unpleasant. We might want to call it pain if that doesn't have too many connotations. The second arrow is suffering. And when we talk about transforming suffering and getting to know suffering, we are talking about being able to open to the unpleasant and learning not to shoot the second arrow. And we're learning to study how we do shoot the second arrow. The study of that, the study of suffering, in that second sense, is um, really right at the heart of our practice. In some sense, it's the first half of the practice. You know, I was, I was um, last year I was in Kentucky uh, teaching. I used to live in Kentucky, and I, I go back there quite a bit. And um, there was a woman who came to uh, study and she's a nurse, and she told a story of a woman that she had met in uh, the hospice, in a hospital she was working at. And this woman was a double amputee. And she had at the foot of her hospital bed a handmade sign that said, pain is a given, suffering is an option. Quite remarkable. (laughs) And so that's really the first half of the awakening process is being willing to open to our patterns by which we shoot the second arrow, by which we suffer. And that'll be a significant part of what we do with judgments. That tends sometimes to be harder, to be um, challenging. We need certain resources and support to be able to do that skillfully. The second aspect of awakening really actually goes hand in hand, but we can look at it a little differently. It's actually manifesting, cultivating and manifesting awakened qualities. So on the one hand, we're willing to go into challenging states and study where we do suffer. And on the other hand, we cultivate qualities like mindfulness, like metta, like wisdom, like concentration, energy, and so forth, uh, the ability to see clearly. And we manifest those qualities more and more. The third and fourth noble truths are about the possibility of actually having moments of freedom, 
And then the fourth truth is about the practical way to develop that. So similarly, when we practice with judgments, a big part of our work is to cultivate um, what we might call awakened qualities or the beautiful qualities, the qualities of mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, and so forth. And I mentioned uh, earlier, and, and Heather also mentioned, how these are really crucial for the work of uh, transforming judgments. In part, it's because to the extent that we go into suffering, it's hard. And, and our minds and our beings need a certain level of uh, renewal, balance, joy, and beauty. So the bad news is that if you want to study and transform judgments, you have to hang out with joy and beauty and love a lot. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. Uh, but it's true that, uh, you know, so a big part of what we'll do here is we will, in a sense, hang out with beautiful non-judgmental states. And that, again, that functions in a lot of different ways. It partly, as we uh, manifest more and more of these awakened qualities, we actually get more of the sense that this is my deeper nature which in some ways we know, in some ways we don't quite believe, you know? And so we, we manifest uh, those qualities more and more, and we come to increasingly to shift the center of gravity in the long term. We shift the center of gravity so that we know ourselves more and more as essentially a kind, brilliant, aware, wise presence. That's the direction. <laughs> and that's, and to, to experience that more and more is really important for the long-term transformation of judgments, of the judgmental mind. Uh, again, we, we, we need that balance, we need those resources, and we, we, it's wonderful to have that sense of here I am experiencing um, a different way of being than the judgmental, which again, we, we all do at certain times. And then... Um, as I think both of us have mentioned today, those awakened qualities at certain key moments can be antidotes or ways to really um, shift when we get caught in really uh, some of our stronger or harsher or more difficult judgments. At those moments when we have mindfulness that they're happening, we can call on these more awakened qualities And again, if we've been practicing them enough, they have the power to shift, to shift us so we're not stuck or lost. Now, that doesn't uproot them. It doesn't get rid of them or transform them, but it brings us back to balance and lets us not be stuck, not not to suffer so much. So in that sense, the practice that we're doing here, I think, really connects with both of those aspects of awakening. Opening to what's challenging at times, what's difficult, being willing to do that. Going against a lot of our conditioning, which says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm for comfort. (laughs) And then manifesting the more awakened qualities. So why in particular is the transformation of judgments important? 
I mentioned some of the reasons uh, last night, but I want to say a little bit more. And I want to say a little bit more about what judgments are. Last night I talked about the, the core distinction between some kind of uh, more neutral noticing her discernment and the judgmental mind as being reactive, as being essentially a composite state in which there's some noticing, seeing, insight, clarity linked with reactivity, linked with typically pushing away. Again, it can, we can have some judgments in which we grab hold, which we might call those examples of inflation. You know, we can inflate our own self-image and be reactive in the sense of grasping. But the primary emphasis at the retreat will be on the negative kind of judgments where we uh, push away, where we don't like something and we judge something harshly ourselves or another or um, some state of affairs. And so we distinguish the judgmental uh, mind type of judgments, if I can say that, from more neutral judgments, as I mentioned. And we, we often use the word judge, you know, that we can say um, they judge the science fair. Not necessarily judgmental. Could be. <laughs> You know, could be, but not necessarily. Or we judged that the weather was this. Or we made a judgment about the um, success of the project or something like that. We use, in English, we use the word judgment like that. So here, we're not using it that way. You're, we're using it to point to some kind of reactivity. <clears throat> and so I'd like, <clears throat> like you to uh, call to mind one of your stronger judgments. This is just going to be for yourself private. Okay. Call to mind one of your own stronger judgments. Could be judgment of self or judgment of someone else. And just bring it to mind right now. You can go inward. Maybe you think of a situation in which that judgment is occurring as if you were reliving it a little bit. And feel what it's like on the level of the body, emotion. What's the thinking like? And just stay with it for a little while. And I'll invite you to use that judgment from your own experience as a reference point throughout the rest of the talk. You know, and say, how is what I experience here, how does that fit or maybe not fit so well with, with what's being said? So let's just look further at some sample judgments. So some judgments from today. Again, there were, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'll ask you, I, we gathered some earlier. Um, I noticed some, and I won't mention the names exactly, but the, I've, I've heard uh, a number of judgments today. There were judgments like, my meditation isn't going how I want. I'm a not a good meditator. I don't understand. Um, I'm having too many judgments, <laughs> you know, uh, and so forth. Um, here's... 
Here's a, a list of some other uh, sources of judgment. This is called the uh, checklist to feeling pathetic. <laughs> Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to that person. Examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all flaws. <laughs> Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And shows a cartoon, has an image of a, um, a woman uh, talking to someone who says, you look great. And in the little cartoon bubble says, don't patronize me. Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is what you will always feel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so any of that familiar? A little bit. Um, so we have to get familiar with the territory of judgments. Uh, you know, so uh, I'll, I'll mention a few that I've known, and, and maybe some of these will resonate. So um, maybe like, people who come to retreats, um, I've often been judged for being overly sensitive. Has anyone been judged for being too overly sensitive? Okay, it looks, okay, and we have about half the group, so I don't know if the other half are the kind of people who judge people for being overly sensitive. <laughs> but that, you know, we can, and, and that's, that's common, so that's a common judgment, or it's very common when something difficult or unpleasant happens, we often have, almost like for many of us, a natural reaction to judge ourselves or to judge someone else when something difficult or unpleasant happens. It's interesting, right? You can note a lot of judgments are actually quite automatic. And we'll, you know, we'll be remembering some here and no, especially noticing them when they, when they occur. We can be another... Example of judgments can be real, you know, in some sense relatively minor. I can be um, at the traffic light, the driver in front of me has a cell phone, I have to wait an extra five seconds, I judge, right? Very, very common, we judge all the time. I chose the wrong checkout line at the supermarket. <laughs> you know, and I have to wait an extra three minutes. Or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it happens. Um, or we can, anyone notice judgments uh, occurring about others at the retreat? You know, I won't ask you to be explicit. <laughs> you know. So one of my uh, most interesting retreats um, was when I focused a lot on judgments and I was just looking at all the judgments. I was at a two-month retreat and I was noticing all the judgments at retreats and there were a lot of them, a lot are possible. You know, whether of myself or of other retreatants or, you know, um, how the cooks assemble the, the food um, at, on the food line. Um, you know, I think, I, I, I think I've mentioned, you may have heard this example, but <laughs> <laughs> this was many years ago and things have changed, I'm sure. <laughs> but I, I remember one of my... Um, Major examples that was really actually came to a lot of insight around it was when uh, tacos were being served, 
And the condiments were set up, so it took a really long time to go through the uh, whole line. And instead of the usual wonderful swift flow made possible by the illustrious cooks, um, there, there was, um, it took like 15 or 20 minutes to get through the line because there were like 12 condiments and everyone was wanting to really be very precise with each of them. And, and, I, and I was, you know, I was near the end of the line and I was judging they should do it differently. You know, and so there can be those kind of judgments and you can notice them. You know, again, the invitation is really to track them. Those can be some ways humorous when we look at them. It's the same tendency of mind actually, though that's there with some of the harsher ones and some of the bigger ones or some of them that can be linked to uh, suffering. You know, um, I don't know if I mentioned this last night, I think I did, but the, one of the really uh, catalyzing experiences for me actually doing a lot of work with judgments was uh, it was it was really a form I've had a few formative periods of working in an inner way with judgments uh, one of them you know one was when I really started practice and was able really just to look at judgments and notice how many there were and see them more clearly another one I'll mention in a little while happened in an interactive context uh, and the, a third third time that was very formative happened about 12 years ago when I was finishing that period of being busy and noticed I, I had, when I came on retreat, I had very harsh judgments about I should have been meditating more. Sort of my own spiritual harsh judgment, which I think comes with the territory of engaging in spiritual practice. We judge ourselves often quite harshly. And I was doing that and it was, it was a lot of suffering. I was also judging others for not being spiritual enough and people I had been with and so forth. It was actually um, painful, quite painful, you know, and you can, can imagine. And it really was the um, starting point for really doing a lot of inquiry into what, what they were about, what the judgments were about in that situation. So there can be those very harsh self-judgments. You know, so I think we're getting, we're getting familiar with them. I want to mention a few other aspects about judgments is that one of them is that there is a strong social and cultural piece often to judgments. It's not just our personal psychology or our upbringing, but there is an important cultural piece. You know, I was, um, I was thinking of a few examples. One of them is, is a, um, quite a powerful example um, and it actually was key to the major uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision of 1954 to desegregate the schools. Um, there were two psychologists, uh, African-American psychologists, uh, Mamie and Kenneth Clark, who were in New York and, and had a clinic in um, Harlem. And they actually did a famous test, which was cited by the Supreme Court as one of the uh, actual empirical tests which was instrumental uh, for the, the Supreme Court coming to the decision to say that desegregation was wrong. And this test invited um, children, I think they were, mostly, they were girls, I believe, ages four to seven. They invited them to um, relate to different kinds of dolls and uh, some of the dolls were 
white dolls and some of the dolls were black dolls and they were asked questions like, which is more like you? Uh, and which is good? Which is bad? Which is the bad doll? Which is the good doll? What they found is that the African-American girls ages four, five, six, seven tended to see the black dolls as bad and as like them. In other words, they were at that very young age already internalizing what we might call the social judgments of the mainstream. And this was cited by the Supreme Court as uh, the internalization in an extremely damaging way of the social values. So judgments get internalized, you know, and, and we sometimes talk about that as a kind of internalized oppression that occurs. And we all have something like that in different ways. We all have some kind of internalization. We can do that around all sorts of things, gender, age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, and so forth. And it's quite strong, and it often takes very conscious work. So it's another, another dimension. So that's a piece, you know, where I was thinking of the example of being at a party. And someone asks you the seemingly innocent question, what do you do? Right? And here I am, I'm at the party. I am an unemployed artist. Depends on the context, but you may get some judgments coming at you. Right? When are you going to grow up? Right? In other words, we, when we start tuning into judgments, particularly in the social realm, we see that they're all over the place. They're, it's thick. You know? There are judgments everywhere, and they define us to a large extent. So it's quite a powerful, uh, quite powerful dimension of things. Because judgments, I think, are so pervasive, and they're really so much connected with some of our deeper senses of self and of who we are, that actually the work of transforming judgments has the potential to go extremely deeply and to open us up to some of our views of self, some of our unconscious beliefs about who we are that can really reveal and transform those structures of self. They're part of a process, I think. Sometimes we talk about practice as the movement from the unconscious to the self-conscious to the universally conscious. And you can see how becoming more aware of the structures of self, the self-images, the identities that are connected with judgments can actually go very, very deeply. And I have found, as I mentioned, that judgments are very uh, pervasive in so many of us, that they, among meditators, they're definitely on that list of the top three or four, you know, which I generally find the top three or four issues are something like judgments, relationships, anger, and self-doubt. Totally unrelated to each other. That was a joke. <laughs> Judgments, relationships, anger, and self-doubt. Okay. Um, so they can be quite, quite connected, but it's, it's definitely right up there on that list. And when we um, work 
deeply with judgments, my experiences, again, working with people, for example, at the two-month retreat that we do here, and seeing how common strong issues of judgment are for so many people. You know? And that when they, and it, and it takes time to work through them, but that working through them can really open up us up to some of the more universal dimensions of who we are and really open up to um, um, these awakened qualities in a, in a powerful way. You know, and it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very powerful uh, model. I think in so many traditions, it's interesting that we find this emphasis on judgment. Many of you know in the teachings of Jesus, where he says, "Do not judge, and you will not be judged." Some of you were raised with that, I imagine, because the judgments you give are the judgments you will get, and the amount you measure out is the amount you will be given. Why do you observe the splinter in your brother's eye and never notice the plank in your own? How dare you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? Hypocrite! Take the plank out of your own eye first and then you will see clearly enough to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. 2,000 years ago, that emphasis. Or from the Jewish tradition, there's a line which goes something like this. Blessed are the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. So that distinction between discernment and being judgmental is very important. You know, we can ask the question, what's wrong with being judgmental? I think we have some sense that it can be deeply connected with suffering. I was thinking of that because my, my mother continually asked me, what's wrong with being judgmental? I like to be judgmental. You know, why shouldn't I be judgmental about something that's wrong? <laughs> and so we have a lot of good discussions. And she, even though she says that, she likes to come to... Um, she likes to come to, she's come to quite a few um, day-longs and other teachings on judgment. She wanted to come here, but um, didn't quite work out. Um, and she, she says, um, judgment's are my favorite topic. <laughs> and so we talk about them. But I was thinking about that because there's something that um, was really interesting, just to say a little bit about this. Um, I think we can sense that uh, the problem with the judgmental mind is that it can lead to suffering. It can lead to the uh, tremendous suffering or even uh, you know, tremendous suffering when we judge ourselves harshly. It can lead to depression, to really being very um, alienated from oneself. It can lead to the breakdown of relationships. It can lead to conflicts, wars, and so forth. And there's a really, there was a really interesting um, text that my sister found for me um, a few years ago. She was in Atlanta visiting the Martin Luther King Center, and she wanted to get a gift for me, and she went in the gift shop, and I had a bunch of CDs of Martin Luther King's sermons. And she found one called Judging Others. 
and she brought it home for me. I may play it later, later in the retreat. Um, it's, it's a beautiful talk. It's basically him giving the interpretation of the statements of Jesus, you know, of why should you not judge? Judge not, lest ye be judged, and so forth. And it's really interesting, because it was a sermon given in 1967, right at the height of his work, you know, and he would ask, you know, he started by saying, shouldn't we judge racists? Shouldn't we judge evil? And his answer was that the teaching is about how, is about the dangers of the judgmental mind. That by all means, we should speak out against what's wrong. But he said, when there is the judgmental mind, there are a lot of dangers. And he essentially, in different language, I think, gave an approach very similar to uh, the one we're offering here. He said that judgments are often based on very limited knowledge. We often judge without knowing what we're talking about when we judge another person. We don't know the facts. They can lead to self-righteousness and rigidity. They can break down relationships. They can lead to self-deception as when we judge others for what we actually are implicitly judging ourselves for. They can lead to hatred. They can lead to polarization. And so he said that what we need to do is to combine the insights of judgments with love and be with others. And maybe we give them feedback or we say things, but unless it's really connected with love, it will have a negative impact. It's quite interesting. So it's different language, but it really points to the kind of approach here, which is to say that we work with judgments in um, several ways. And what we ultimately want to do is we want to separate out the noticing or the intelligence or the discernment in judgments from the reactivity, which is, that's just one sentence that says a lot, you know, that's, it's, it's a lot to transform the reactivity, that we want to somehow um, be able to make use of the insight or the discernment or the intelligence in the judgment. I may see someone who's acting, let's say, what seems to, we would, most of us would call very rudely, let's say in a social situation, I can be really judgmental and reactive towards that person. I'm actually seeing something that's quite important to see. You know, it's accurate in some ways. I'm seeing problematic behavior. I can be judgmental, which might lead me to be separating myself, be harsh towards that person. How can I no longer have the reactivity so that I could actually see what I'm seeing and act compassionately? Use the intelligence not be reactive and act intelligently. That's the whole purpose of what we're doing here. So we're not wanting to throw out the intelligence or the moral energy connected with judgments, but we want to transform the reactivity. So how do we do that? How does that occur? What, how do we actually practice with judgments? We parallel the very process of awakening when we work with the judgmental mind. On the one hand, we use mindfulness and inquiry to study the judgments, to be with them, to see what they are, 
to go more deeply into the judgment. And on the other hand, we develop awakened qualities which point to a non-judgmental way of being. So let me say a little bit about both of those approaches. At this point in the retreat, we're beginning to emphasize being mindful, being aware of the judgmental mind. And we pointed to how we can be mindful of judgments in two ways, two main ways. One is we can name judgments when they're there, which just starts to get judgments on our radar. We want to start seeing them. It's important when we start seeing judgments more not to be too worried or scared about about how many judgments there are. And be careful about making the judgment, there are sure a lot of judgments. (laughs) Because the way that is, it's kind of a different level than the other kind of judgments. And our mind actually doesn't often count it as a judgment and we can get trapped in it. I call it a stealth judgment. It's kind of below the radar. And we want to look out for that. When we're doing a lot of work with judgments, we're going to see them a lot more. No way around that. And just know that that's normal. So we note judgments. Then when they are there in a strong way at this retreat, and we will be wanting to look at judgments when they're here, but we also want, will a little later in the retreat, we will sometimes deliberately go into the judgmental territory. And we want to study them, become familiar with them, It's really necessary to do that, to really notice what they're like. Notice how it feels in the body. We'll be using a lot of practices that work at the level of the body because often when we study judgments closely, we'll notice that there's a certain bodily way that they express themselves. You know, that when we are judgmental, maybe my my chest collapses or my hands get tight, you know, or there's something happening physiologically. Judgments, in other words, are a certain state of the nervous system. And when we study it on the bodily level, often we can have more uh, awareness of when they're happening and catch them earlier on. So we study them, we explore them quite closely. We have to stay with them. We notice, what's, how do judgments manifest in my experience? What do they look like? And then I want to mention a further um, set of ways of studying judgments, still go and get further into them. As we look more into judgments, we start also seeing what are the patterns by which judgments occur in my experience? What typically, what are some of the typical triggers for judgments? You know, do I go into judgments when someone does something to me, says something to me? At this other formative time when I was really studying judgments a lot, which was about, uh, I think about uh, 14, 15 years ago, um, I was uh, working with a person in a position of authority and having meetings every two weeks. And this person, many of us thought we had the judgment often, this person is not a good listener and yet he is in a position of authority. This is difficult. And we, I would go to the meetings, and I would often have the experience that um, I would think that he wasn't listening to what I was saying. Actually, that wasn't really my experience. My experience was that I really get, um, the Buddhist technical term is pissed off. <laughs> and I would, 
I would go into judgments. Basically, I would raise a point. I would say something. This happened over and over again. I gave him some feedback, but because he didn't listen so well, that didn't work so well either. Um, and I would, uh, but I was actually in a process of investigation because I, uh, I'm describing a process that took quite a while. And I would be in the situation, and initially I just noticed I'm really, really judgmental towards this man who has uh, some authority. And uh, it took a while to really study the pattern and to know that it was connected with having the interpretation in my own mind, he is not listening to me. It took a while to get there. And to really study the pattern, after a while I got to see that there was a pattern of, I don't feel listened to. I instantly react and withdraw emotionally into a um, comfortable place of distanced moral superiority. Does anyone do this? This is anyone's patterns? Okay. So, um, and that was really interesting. So I studied the pattern. I got to really, got to really know that pattern. So there's this really important role for studying, exploring. That's what we want to do here. We'll be introducing some practices which help us explore judgments more and really, and really look into them. Ultimately, in this um, time when I was doing a retreat with judgments, I used some practices, which we'll do later, which actually made use of awareness of the body. And when I was having judgments, or I would sometimes also call them forth deliberately, I would go into my body and feel what was there. I would be on the food line and there would be the taco situation repeated. And I would, I would go into my body and try to be aware of what was there. And I did this probably 20 times a day. Sometimes I would bring up judgments and try to bring them up in my mind and then see what was there in my body. Using the body as an access point actually for the unconscious, for what was beneath the surface. And after a certain while, it became clear that every time when I brought my awareness into my body, I found some kind of pain that I wasn't fully in touch with. With the tacos line, it was the everyday unpleasant situation of impatience. But when I would go into that situation, go into the judgments of myself for not having done enough spiritual practice, I would touch some kind of grief or some real sadness there. You know, and I would touch that. What I eventually found, this is something we'll explore some, is that my judgments, and I came to see this with virtually all of my judgments, the reactive judgments, were driven by some kind of unacknowledged or unprocessed pain that I wasn't in touch with. And that as I went deeper into judgments, I was able to touch that pain And touching that pain tended to heal it and release the judgment. And that's the mechanism, one of the mechanisms we use in this work. We go deeper into the judgment. It's possible to touch what's driving the judgment with presence, with kindness, with compassion. And something gets healed and the judgments tend to dry up. That's a lot. It's a lot to say that. And it takes time to go 
further into and see what's driving the judgments. But that's what I have found in my own experience. And we'll be working with some practices that explore in that way, that can really open up in that way. You know? And I came to see that for myself, so many of my judgments were driven by pain. And I grew to be able to see that more and more quickly as I was doing these practices. I would do this practice of going into the body 20 times a day on retreat. And I did it in a very full way for several years. And it really opened this up. So um, I came to really um, feel that connection and be able to release release that kind of uh, pain. The other kind of work, and I'll finish with this, the other kind of work that we do is this work of um, opening up to the beautiful qualities. You know, and we do that with, with our metta practice, with developing mindfulness, with developing compassion. We really grow to be able to um, shift the center of gravity from the judgmental mind to the awakened mind. And that's again takes practice, but it really it really follows from what we're doing here. And I think it's helpful to see those twin aspects of how um, how we transform judgment. So in the, the first kind of practice, we we go into the judgments, we go more deeply into them, we go into the roots ultimately. And again, if judge, if I'm right that judgments are essentially a kind of defense mechanism to prevent us from feeling something. That's, that's what I found. We'll talk more about that. They're a kind of defense. We judge so we don't feel something in ourselves or with the other. And when we actually go into what we're protecting ourselves against, we can transform the very roots of judgment. And then on the other side, we strengthen these awakened qualities So they get more and more, they get stronger and stronger, and we live more and more from them. And they also have that quality of being able to um, uh, be antidotes to judgments. So these are the twin forms of our work. We go into judgments, which is hard work sometimes, and sometimes we need to take a break from that because it's challenging. And then we cultivate beautiful qualities. And these are kind of the twin Um, sets of practices for transformation. And they're actually, in this retreat, applied to the judgmental mind, but they're really the core practices that we use in general. This is what we do generally in our practice. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes energy and it takes uh, community support to do that. It's not easy work, but it's really um, potentially opens us up to healing to transformation and to greater and greater freedom and the ability to um, help others, really. Let me end just with a little poem. Let me see where this is. This is really about the quality of how when we work with some of our difficulties, some of our challenging states, something beautiful comes out of it. Quite interesting. And this is from uh, the poet Antonio Machado. And this talks really about the gifts of what he calls my old failures. So this is the poem, and I'll end with this. 
Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart, and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. The golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Thank you for your kind attention. May your may your golden bees be active, <laughs> and may they um, be friendly and sweet. And may um, may we enjoy this uh, mysterious process by which a difficult part of our lives can be transformed and can really um, lead to greater wisdom and lead to greater compassion. Mysterious how we human beings are organized, but this is how it seems to be to me. Thank you.